All right, Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 11. Paul says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Heavenly Father, I pray now, bless the preaching of your word. Help me this morning to be able to give what I believe you've led me to say, but help me be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, that I wouldn't say anything that would not be helpful, but that I would not leave anything out that you would want to be said. Help me this morning, Lord, to the best of my ability to look to the text without prejudice or agenda and say what it means in order that we may know, thus saith the Lord. May our hearts be open to the preaching of your word. May it convict, encourage, direct, chasten, whatever the need may be in our hearts this morning. I pray that we would be open, that we would receive the message, and I pray that you would help me now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. To briefly recap in bullet points our introduction from last week, this message centers around Peter, who was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Men like Peter, James, John, and Paul himself were apostles who had seen the Lord in his resurrected body and had received their ministry and message directly from the Lord himself. Paul has been making much of the fact that I am an apostle. Some of the Judaizers who were legalists were telling the churches in the region of Galatia, Paul is not an apostle. He was simply told what to say by the apostles at Jerusalem. And Paul goes to great lengths to repeat himself often to say, I got my gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'm not speaking the words of men, I'm speaking the words of God. And to further back up his point, Paul includes an example of how one time he had to rebuke and confront the apostle Peter to his face in front of the whole church and correct Peter because Peter was wrong and Peter had engaged in sinful behavior. Peter loved the Lord, but Peter was quite often apt to make a mistake, to deny the Lord, to say, I'll never deny you, but then to trip up and to do it. In the book of Acts, Peter was more grounded in the faith. He preached on the day of Pentecost. He became somewhat of a legend, no doubt, to this first century church. When he would travel to other cities, they would say, here is Peter. Here is the man who walked with the Lord. Here is the man who preached on the day the Holy Spirit was given. This is Peter. And it's a wonderful thing to receive good teachers. But it's also important to remember that the very best men are still just men. And we are not followers of men. We are followers of the Lord. Four short verses, but there's so much to pull out of them. Paul, in telling his story, says, When Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Now, the city of Antioch became an interesting city that, according to my brief research, was something like 300 miles away from Jerusalem and might have taken you a couple of weeks. But within the the frame of about two, two and a half weeks, you could walk from Jerusalem and you could get to Antioch. Now, Antioch was a unique city because it became an asylum city for the Jewish Christians who were now saved. 
Antioch was under Roman rulers, the same as Jerusalem was, but Antioch was very diverse. It was made up of many different cultures, many different beliefs. It would be something akin to New York City or even Dallas or our area itself, where when you traveled to it, it was not just one group of people from one background, but it was very diverse because people had traveled there to become a part of this booming city. And part of what was going on in Antioch according to what the historians say, is that they said we want to be known as the city of ideas. This is a city where you can come and teach something new. This is a city where you can get up and teach about your culture, your idols, your religion, your philosophies, and it can be met in the public square. It would be something like the the Ivy League schools in America, or at least what they used to be. It was the whole idea was you bring ideas to the table and you're able to hash them out. Now when someone comes in with an opposing point of view, they shut the place down and threaten them for their lives because the the, the people who want to control the thoughts and control the agenda don't want open debate. But in Antioch, they had open debate. So the church here in the first century was able to see, ha, they've said the Jews are able to speak their religion and all these different cultures can speak their religion. So if we go as Jewish Christians or as Gentile Christians, they'll give us a seat at the table. Not to say, yes, we elevate and magnify Christ, but they said, if you want to bring your idea of Christianity to the table, you're welcome to do it. So in Antioch, they were apparently not being thrown into prison and put to death the same way that they were in Jerusalem. So Paul and some of the apostles went there. Some Christians, no doubt from Jerusalem, migrated there. And as a result, the gospel migrated there. The church was established there. And many people were coming to Christ in a diverse city that was full of many different backgrounds, races, and ethnicities. The scriptures tell us that it was at Antioch that the the disciples were first called Christians. It was there that the church was growing and thriving, and people looked at people who were living for the Lord, and they said they are a Christian. They are the ones who follow Christ himself, and that was a name that was given to us by the outside world, and that was first done at the city of Antioch. Acts 13.1 is a very interesting verse where it says in the church that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers were located there. So in this thriving city where the church was growing, there were multiple prophets, there were multiple teachers who were taking on the oversight of the church. And then it lists a few of them. The first one there is Barnabas. Barnabas traveled with Paul. He's mentioned in our text in Galatians as having followed along in Peter with his sin and his error. Scripture tells us that Barnabas was from Cyprus. He was a Levite. He grew up in the Jewish tradition. Then it says that there was Simeon, who the best that we can tell, Simeon was an African. He was a black man, and he was one of the prophets who was helping to oversee the church as well. Then it mentions Lucius. He was from Cyrene. This was a Greek colony in North Africa, which was later converted to a Roman colony. Then at the end, it says one of the leaders was Menane, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So Paul himself was one of the leaders while he was there. But this last man named Menin was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was the one who ordered John the Baptist to be put to death. 
He was a Roman leader. So this man apparently had been brought up in the ranks with the Romans where they trained you from a young age to be a soldier, to be a leader. And their lives, when they were friends as young people being trained by the Roman army, took divergent paths so that Herod was putting John the Baptist to death. But Menin was a leader at the church in Antioch. This gives us evidence that the church here, even in the leadership, and no doubt in all of the church itself, the people who were saved at Antioch, was a diverse church. They were not all from the same background, culture, or skin color, but rather many people came together and made up a local New Testament church. Now, we really don't know when this event occurred of Paul confronting Peter. There's an incident that we covered a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 15, where it records Peter standing up on the behalf of the Gentiles and saying, don't put burdens on them. Don't put the legalism on them. Don't tell new Gentile converts that they have to keep the Jewish traditions because God has already taught me and showed me that no man should be called unclean. There should not be separate churches segregated because of the cultures or races that they grew up in. But God has said the mystery revealed in the New Testament is that there's one church and all who come to Christ are to be looked at as co-equal members of the body of Christ and we're supposed to love each other as brothers and sisters in the Lord no matter where we came from, no matter what our skin color is. So if this event occurred before Acts chapter 15, this would be part of what God used in Peter's life to teach him these lessons. If it occurred after Acts chapter 15, then it would be apparent how far Peter had fallen from his knowledge of God's grace and the freedom that God had taught him Christians were supposed to live by. Either way, this incident at Antioch is a cautionary tale and reminds us that no matter how spiritual we think that we are, we're still capable of sinning. We're still capable of sliding away. The Bible says, if you think that you stand, take heed lest you fall. Be careful in thinking, well, I've arrived, or I may struggle in some areas, but this area over here, I've got it figured out. Because then you're setting yourself up for pride and you're setting yourself up to come under condemnation of the devil and for sins. But this incident in Galatians 2.11, according to my uh, looking at Scripture, it has to be after the book of Acts chapter number 10. The book of Acts chapter 10 is where God very clearly taught Peter, you need to go to the Gentiles, share tables with the Gentiles, share the gospel with the Gentiles, and let the barriers be broken down between you, and don't let the church be a Gentile New Testament church and a Jewish New Testament church. It's only one. Everyone is supposed to be welcomed and received. Because at that point, if you look at the narrative in Acts 9, Paul was just getting saved. In Acts 10, Peter was preaching and learning that lesson through what happened with Cornelius and the vision God gave him that he was to receive the Gentiles. And it's not until Acts chapter 13 and verse 1 that Paul is sanctioned and sent out on his first missionary journey. So I don't want to lose anyone this morning, but what I'm saying is the event in Galatians chapter 2 was when Peter and Paul were both established apostles, and at some point they were in Antioch. They made multiple trips to Jerusalem. They made multiple trips to Antioch. And at one point in time, Peter had been there, Paul showed up and saw what was going on and needed to confront Peter because he was living by hypocrisy. And Peter had already been clearly taught by the Lord he was not to segregate with the church based off of whether or not they were Jewish or whether they were Gentile. Paul says, when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face 
because he was to be blamed. So some simple thoughts from the text this morning. Number one, Paul was willing to confront Peter. He says, I withstood him to the face before them all. I went to Peter and said, there's an issue here. You are wrong and you need to repent. Now listen, church, I believe that no one is above this. Not husbands, not fathers, not bosses, not deacons, not missionaries, not pastors. No one ever gets to the place where they are say, I am not to be questioned. I am the authority. Trust me. Do what I say. Don't come to me saying you're, what you said is wrong according to the teaching of the Scripture. I am not to be questioned. The Bible does not leave that as a possibility if we are walking and leading correctly. Pastors are not to be above being questioned about money, about doctrine, about morality, about ethics, about the spirit with which he is preaching. I was reading an article on an airplane a couple of weeks ago as we were flying back from Kansas, and the article was a pretty good one, and it was entitled, What is Not Abuse? Because we're in a day and age where people have rightly looked at abusive behavior in the church or without the church and said, that's abusive, to verbally talk to someone that way, to try and control their life, to belittle them in front of other people, whatever it may be, that's abusive. But the article was saying you have to be careful in looking at things and calling them abusive when they're actually not. And one of the things it said is not abusive is for rebuke to be given if it is done scripturally. It's not abusive for leadership within the church to confront someone over sin and call them to get right. And it's not abusive for people to look to the leadership and question them and say, are you sure that that lines up and agrees with the Word of God. The article was giving scriptural examples, and in the scriptural example for why a rebuke is not to be considered abuse just because it's being given, it said, see the whole book of Galatians. And that's what the book of Galatians is. It's a rebuke from chapter 1 to chapter 6. He's saying you are falling away from the pure gospel of Christ. You're falling into legalism. You need to repent. You need to get rid of the false teachers. You need to follow the good doctrine that I taught you. The Apostle Paul was, according to what the Scripture indicates, a mild-mannered man. In person, he was not very bombastic. He was maybe not even the most talented orator. But when he was dealing with the church, whether by letter or by face, as he was in the text this morning, he was not shy to say what needed to be said. He named enemies of the church and said avoid them. He confronted Christians in the Bible. Let me give you machine gun style here real quick. Some chains of verses that speak to this idea of being willing to give and receive confrontation. Now I beseech you brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. But now I have written unto you, Paul says to the church at Corinth, not to keep company. If a man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. He's addressing sin, not by our unsaved neighbors, but by them that are within the church. And he says if there's someone who's involved openly and unrepentantly in fornication or extortion, it may come to the place where you separate from them and you say, I'm not going to sit down to have a meal with you because you're in sin and you need to repent and I'm not going to pretend like there's not anything wrong. 
Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye received of us. Another one, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet account him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So the example given in Scripture is not that this would be done as a prideful thing, but lovingly with the goal of restoration. Paul says in Galatians 6, with the spirit of meekness, seek to restore the one who has fallen and consider yourself lest you be lifted up with pride and pridefully try to correct others because you could fall into sin as well. And you need to be aware of that. Proverbs says, reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The writer in Proverbs says you're a lot better off to have a friend that will wound you when you need it than to have an enemy that gives you deceitful kisses all the time. Everything is good. You're the best. You got this. Go ahead and do what you're speaking of doing. But a friend is one who's willing to tell you the truth that you need to hear, even if it's a wound at the moment of it. And Proverbs says it's a mark of a wise man if we're willing to receive that correction. But when you rebuke a fool, he will hate you because he doesn't care about the truth and he'll try to surround himself only with people who tells him what he wants to hear. And that's not good for us. That's not good for any of us. That's not good for leadership, for anything, to say I'll only hear the opinions of people who tell me the best things about myself. Matthew Matthew 18, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We need to be careful also that we apply wisdom and we seek balance in this matter. If we take it upon ourselves to think it's our job to go confront everyone and to say, I'm not really sure if you're doing wrong, but answer all these questions so that you can tell me what we could do is we could fall too far on the other end of the spectrum. And every Sunday, if the pastor accidentally said a word wrong, we're going to clobber him and correct him and tell him you pronounce that word wrong or whatever it may be. I'm kind of joking with that one, but we need to seek balance that we don't think we are the most righteous and it's our job to get in everybody's business and to give the rebuke. But the other side of that is that sometimes we have very clear opportunity and responsibility to lovingly bring a confrontation to another brother or sister in Christ and encourage them to get right with God. And that's what Paul did within the text. Barnes says about this phrase, I withstood him to the face. He says, I openly opposed him and reproved him. Paul thus showed that he was equal with Peter in his apostolic authority and dignity. The instance before us is one of faithful public reproof, and every circumstance in it is worthy of special attention, as it furnishes a most important illustration of the manner in which such reproof should be conducted. The first thing to be noted is that it was done openly and with candor. It was reproof addressed to the offender himself. 
Paul did not go to others and whisper his suspicions. He did not seek to undermine the influence and authority of another by slander. He went to him at once, and he frankly stated his views and reproved him in a case where he was manifestly wrong. This too was a case so public and well known that Paul made his remarks before the church because the church was interested in it and because the conduct of Peter led the church into error. Number one, Paul was willing to confront Peter. Number two, Peter was guilty of racism. You say this, that's a heavy charge for one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Racism was rampant at the time that Jesus came. It's bad in our world today. It's always been a source of sin and the pride of the hearts of men. But it's nothing new today. When Jesus came, the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. There was animosity between them. The Jews taught and said, It is not lawful for you to sit at the table of a Gentile and share a meal with him. Even the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. The Jews would go way out of their way on their journey so they would not have to pass through the town of Samaria where Jesus went to witness to the woman at the well. It's because the Samaritans were of a mixed race. They were partly Jewish, part another race. And their religion was partly the Jewish religion and partly another one. And as such, the Jews had a special hatred for them in saying, you are kind of claiming to be Jewish and kind of claiming to follow the Torah when you produce this hybrid, half-breed, mongrel type of a part of it, and they hated them as much or more than they hated the Gentiles or the Romans or the Greeks who were oppressing them and who followed the idols. And while it's not part of the message this morning, just look to the example of Christ. Christ went directly to the well. Christ spoke to the woman with love and respect. He told her the truth, but He told her of her sin. And He told her how she could get it right and receive forgiveness. And her reaction in the story in John chapter 4, she said, How is it that you speak to me? I'm a woman. I'm a Samaritan. And the Jewish men don't speak to women in public, and they don't speak to Samaritans. But Jesus said, I'll speak to you. I'll deal with you. I love you. I'm going to die for your sins and I want you to have the gospel as much as everybody else. And though it's going to take them a while to get it through their heads, that's what I want my disciples to do as well. I want my church, Jesus says, to follow my example and to love everyone equally, no matter where they're from, no matter what the history is of their country and your country. You're supposed to look at them as a soul for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died and love them, give them the gospel and receive them into the church as you equal. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them, which were of the circumcision. Now, it's so simple, but sometimes we just pass over the fact that the first century church in the book of Acts, you know what they did and did together a lot? A lot of things. They gathered for preaching. They gathered in their homes to study the Bible. They gathered together for prayer. But the New Testament records a lot of the times, they gathered together to eat, to have food one with another. There were love feasts that were instituted where the church would come and give to each other gifts and expressions of gratitude to one another and to God. And a feast would be prepared and the whole church would eat. They were constantly partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, of coming together and partaking together around the Lord's table to remember His body and His blood. And Acts chapter 2 says that the church continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine, in prayers, and in the breaking of bread. So it's good to come to church. It's good to hear someone stand up and preach the Word who, Lord willing, has a calling on their life to give hours of their time to study the Word so that they may teach it and bring it out and all of us can hear it. Even if it's things we already know, we need to be under the teaching and preaching so that we're reminded of how to live for the Lord and to come together and be encouraged to see each other. But in the book of Acts, what they were doing and what it's also good for us to do is to sit down for a meal to sit down where we can discuss the Word of God face to face and get to know something about one another and encourage one another and learn about each other's burdens so that we can pray for each other in a better and deeper way than if all we ever said was hello and goodbye when the church comes in and the church lets out. So what is the act of Peter here? It's the definition of racism and prejudice. Because what it says is that before certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. Peter had learned from the Lord, don't call anything unclean, don't call any man unclean. In Acts chapter 10, there was a man named Cornelius who was praying to the Lord. He wanted to hear the gospel. And God gave a vision to Peter and he said, go to Cornelius and tell him how to get saved. The Gentiles are going to get saved the same way that the Jews do. And to prepare Peter for this transition away from legalism and the law, he gave him a vision. It was of a giant sheet coming down from heaven and it was filled with animals that were unlawful for the Jews to eat. It was called unclean in the Old Testament. And God said to Peter, go kill that animal and eat of it. And what did Peter do? He said, not so, Lord, as Peter was wont to do. Let me fill you in on some things, God. You're missing it. Listen to me. No, not so. Peter said, for I am a Jew and I've never eaten an unclean animal my whole life. And God said, Peter, I'm trying to teach you that what I call clean, don't call unclean. So he was using the example of the food, which those laws were not to be put on the Gentiles either. But he was using that as an illustration to say, go to the Gentiles and receive them into the church. Give them the gospel. So Peter learned this lesson. And what he was doing in Antioch was no doubt when he showed up, he was some kind of a celebrity. He was some kind of a legend. He was some kind of a celebrity pastor just by definition because of who he was and where he'd been. And the Gentiles, the Jews, all of them were thrilled to meet Peter. Would you come to our house and share a meal? Would you come to our table? And he was going everywhere, enjoying all types of fellowship. And John MacArthur said, no doubt, eating all kinds of foods he'd never eaten before. Think about it. The Gentiles were not preparing coke meals for Peter. All that was left behind. So Peter showed up and ate what was given and received it with thanksgiving. They were having a good time. But then it says certain came from James. This would be referring no doubt to James, the Lord's brother, who is the leader of the church at Jerusalem. We have no indication from the text that it was James that sent them to do this, for James was faithful in Acts 15 to say, don't lay a burden on the Gentiles. Don't tell them they have to keep the Jewish law. But it was people who came, again, were they saved? Were they not saved? Albert Barnes says it's really difficult to tell whether they were not saved or whether they were simply obstinate, opinionated, and off, though in some respects they were good men. Whatever the case is, these men always opposed the Apostle Paul. They always met his message of grace and of freedom and of telling Gentile believers they didn't have to be Jews with resistance. And Paul always had to be on his toes to deal with the Judaizers and to contradict their arguments. So people came from Jerusalem. 
These people had been in Jerusalem where the Jews were persecuted. They evidently were some type of leaders within the church or carried some type of stature. And they looked down on the Gentiles and the Jews intermingling. And they were saying, no, tell the Gentiles they have to keep the law of Moses. And if they won't do it, then don't go eat at their table. Don't eat uh, uh, animals that are unclean for us to eat. Separate, segregate. And apparently these men were so influential that for one reason or another, they caused Peter to fear being persecuted. They caused Peter to fear being condemned by them. And he very quietly withdrew and separated himself because he was afraid of the Judaizing teachers. That's the definition of prejudice, behavior, and of racism. And it's very painful if you've experienced it. Peter says, no, I can't come. I'm going to get up and walk away from your table. I won't share a meal with you. Why is Peter doing this? Why is he rejecting us? Because we're Gentiles. And he's a Jew. This was contrary to the clear teachings of the Word of God. This was very hurtful. This was painful to the Gentiles. This was risking the church being split into two different churches. Because one of the apostles was engaging in prejudicial behavior. In recent years, there was a story in the news that a pastor of a historic congregation in the South had turned away a couple who he had initially said he would do their wedding. But because there was an uproar in the church and they were angry and they came to the pastor and said, you can't do that. He said, I will not perform your wedding. And it's because the bride was a white lady, but the groom was a black man. And as often happens within a church is people will be at a church and they'll come though at sometimes and they'll say to the leaders of the church, this is my church. My grandfather paid for this church. Repay your salary. You will not do something that is contrary to the way that we do things around here. And the pastor bowed to the pressure and tried to say, well, it wasn't really my decision, but it's always been our tradition. And he backed away from performing the wedding, not for any scriptural reason at all, but because of the prejudice that was built into the culture of the church. And when I was younger, I heard some fundamentalist recordings of their preaching where they preached against interracial marriage and even corrected it in the same sentence as they were correcting the lifestyle of homosexuality. This is wrong. This doesn't come from Scripture. And this causes harm within and without the body of Christ when we succumb to this type of teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is speaking of a widow who's lost her husband and says she's allowed to be remarried. And the Apostle Paul said, she's free to, if her husband has died, she's free to be remarried to whomsoever she will. Only in the Lord. So a couple of things we take from that verse. Number one, if you're single, the Bible says you can choose who you want to marry. You don't have to have this idea of, well, there was only one soulmate that I've ever had and I have to have the Lord give it to me by divine revelation. And then I know I can marry them. And if God doesn't show me, I'm going to be all torn apart. But what if this is the wrong one? What if there's another one? Paul said the only requirement is that they be in the Lord, that you marry another Christian who is right with God, that it's God's will for your life. Paul has nothing to say about restrictions of one person from a race marrying another one. Yet sometimes in examples like that, the church has sinned against God by preaching rules that God himself did not preach. And that is the definition of legalism. All right, Lord, help me for a minute. 
And while I am not for the agenda of many people who would look at the racial tension and strife in our history and say, well, now all that means that our system didn't work. Now we need to be communists. Now give up your freedoms. Now let us be your rulers. That's how we heal the sins of racism in our past. It's still important to stop and to note that sometimes even people who were speaking for God did so in a way that brought harm, in a way that was sinful, in a way that did not agree with the Word of God. There was a independent Baptist evangelist and newspaper editor who was greatly used of the Lord throughout the 1950s and 60s. And his father was a Baptist preacher, but also a Klansman. And as we look at the sins of some of the people of the past, it is important to note sometimes the way they were raised and what they were taught and to see that God gave them opportunity to repent and to change. And we need to give people the opportunity to repent and to change and to learn. In May 1930 in Sherman, Texas, the town experienced an ugly race riot. A black man named George Hughes was accused of raping a white woman. At his trial, an angry mob of 5,000 white men surrounded the courthouse and fought their way through the Texas Rangers and National Guard assigned to protect him. After setting fire to the courthouse, the mob, the mob dragged Hughes' body behind a car, pulling to a stop at the front of the drugstore in the black section of town. After hanging him on a tree in front of this drugstore, the lynch mob built a fire with the store furnishing so they could simultaneously roast and hang the already dead body. By morning, most of the town's black business district laid in ashes. Exactly one year later, the Baptist evangelist and newspaper editor, the Klansman member's son, preached a citywide crusade in Sherman. In his preaching, he managed to find the courage to call out by name and preach against both the doctors and druggists who prescribed the whiskey and the local Baptist pastor who sponsored mixed swimming parties. Somehow, though, he could not find the courage to utter one word of condemnation for the anarchy, mob violence, lynching, and general mayhem wreaked upon the town's black population. He did not speak for it, yet neither did he speak against it. Another leading Baptist pastor of the same era, this man pastored two large megachurches at the same time, one in Fort Worth and one in Michigan. In his preaching, often thundered loud and long against anything he perceived as a threat to white racial purity. Preaching about interracial marriage, he roared, I can name to you people south of the Mason-Dixon line that if a Negro should take a white girl's hand in marriage, that girl would be without a Negro husband before the sun arose the next morning. Then from his pulpit, he cheerfully offered to conduct the funeral. He had another ally of his time that was a, an evangelist and a preacher who, who founded a Bible college in the South. And in 1928, this pastor of the megachurches joined with his friend and another friend to rally the country against the Catholic candidacy of New York's governor, Al Smith. At one Texas rally, he snarled, What a conglomeration! Tamani Hall, Roman Catholicism, bootleggers, carpetbag politicians, and Negroes. What will the white people of Texas do? At another rally held in Alabama, he, he roared, Al Smith believes in social equality. He approves of the intermarriage of Negroes with whites. He associates with Negroes. He, sto he stoops to social equity to get the Negro votes. He ran for the New York Assembly on the same ticket with Negroes. 
He has a Negro member of his legislature. He has taken the Negro away from the Republican Party. He has made the Negro believe that he will be welcome in the White House when he is elected. If he is elected, it will be because the Negro and foreign-born vote enables him to carry the East while the South remains solid. As I said, praise the Lord that many of the people and the men who engaged in such sins did begin to repent. For example, the newspaper editor and evangelist, some 20 years later, he began to publicly speak out against the, the, the KKK. And once he tried to go into a local drugstore and the local drugstore refused him service because he brought with him a black man who was a gospel singer. And the evangelist stormed out of the drugstore indignant, never to return. But nonetheless, some of the sins remain and some of the pain that was caused remain. The evangelist who founded the Bible College preached a message on Easter morning in 1960 and he used for his text Acts 17.26 that says, God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell upon the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Somehow he ignored the first part of the verse which says that all human beings come from the same blood and are all brothers and sisters in the image and likeness of God and he preached his entire sermon about how the bounds of our habitation means that immigration is wrong and went on to proudly proclaim that the answer to strife in America was to take the black man and send him back to Africa. Somehow conveniently ignoring that that would also entail taking the white man and sending him back to Europe. You see how silly some of these things are. Yet how deep they can become rooted and how much pain that can be caused if we do not follow the clear teachings of the Word of God. When that man founded a Bible college, it had a history of being prejudiced against black people and had rules against them coming and then against them dating students that were of a different skin color. And year after year after year, it was brought up in exposés that brought some shame to the cause of Christ because they were clinging to their tradition instead of correcting it according to the Word of God. And it was only in recent years that they finally changed their policies. The writer of this article says that when I was in Bible college, I was routinely forbidden to have a black attendance larger than 5% of the total of those who rode on my bus to come to church. He goes on to say that he still talks to some of his peers in the ministry, pastors who say that they have other friends in the ministries and members of their congregation who believe deep down, if they tell you the truth, they believe in segregation. I'm not prejudiced against black people, but keep them away from me. Let them do their own thing and I'll do mine. The problem with that and what is so heartbreaking about it is the absolute clarity with which the scripture speaks exactly to this subject. Jesus corrected it among his disciples, the Jews. And there's one passage right in the middle of Galatians chapter 2 that tells the church you're not supposed to segregate from one another based upon your race or your skin color. Everyone is to be received and welcomed into the body of Christ. When this has not been followed, there should be repentance and restoration should be, should be sought. And the truth is, some children were brought up in a context where they were taught prejudice. They were taught to be hateful. And as I said, we need to give people the chance to repent. Cancel culture doesn't like to give place for people to repent. But at the end of the day, they all end up eating each other if they're not careful because everybody has sinned in their past. We all need the grace of God. 
And if you've ever looked and said, well, they sure do talk funny, it's important to remember that's a matter of perspective because to, if you went to their country where they're from, you probably would stick out and sound really funny yourself. Slavery and segregation were sins. They should not have happened. In South Carolina in 2015, during the presidential primaries, a robocall was made in South Carolina and it was said to the voters, if you vote for Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, you're a traitor to your race. So sin remains because the flesh remains. But shame on us if the church of God is not known for making the call to repent of such behavior and to seek to love everyone equally because we're all created in the image and likeness of God. Peter was in error. Peter was sinning and he needed to be rebuked. I was thinking about this in recent weeks. I'm glad that our church, as small as we are, has some measure of diversity. I think it's good. I think it's healthy. I don't know what it says other than that maybe the people who are coming feel that they're accepted, feel that they're welcomed. And our community is a diverse community. So if someone walks in, it's helpful for them to look around and see, well, I'm welcomed here and not think I'm an outsider. There's nobody who looks like me. There's nobody who's who's a minority that's in this church. And I think it's a good thing that we should seek to strive for. And boy, I sure would love uh, whenever our Spanish-speaking guys get ready to start that Spanish church. Let's go for it because that's who we're surrounded by a lot. And I would love to see as many of them come and receive the gospel in years to come as God would grant us the vision and opportunity to accomplish. Let me see. I'm about ready to move to the next point here. Um, A couple more examples. Uh, John and Sarah's church in Fort Worth, Worth Baptist Church, their pastor, said when he started, let's ask God to help us reach more people in our community because our church doesn't look anything like our community, so let's try to reach the people who are living here. And I can't remember all the details, but there was something like a group of refugees that I don't know what they were, Haitian or what country they came from, but he found out that within a few miles of the church there was an apartment complex that was filled with refugees who came from this other culture. So he said, let's do this. Let's make a special day targeted at getting them to come and hear the gospel. So they passed out flyers and mailings and they said, we're going to have a day where as part of what goes on at church, we're going to have a little section where we celebrate the culture you came from. And then we're going to preach the gospel to them. And so he welcomed them and they did some recognition of the visitors and they celebrated and gave some facts about their culture and, and, and the country that they came from. And they preached the gospel to them. And a longtime member, just like the other ones I was talking about before, came to see him. And he said to the pastor, if you keep doing stuff like that, I'm out. The pastor said, goodbye. Because we're going to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ the way he tells us to, to every creature. And the church's direction is not to be determined by the people who sat there the longest and think they own the church. It's supposed to follow the word of God. Charles Spurgeon was the probably the most famous Baptist pastor that ever lived. He, I learned in recent years, was given some advice in a counselor, and he said, don't start that whole writing ministry thing you have the idea about. That You know, you, you need to just focus on preaching. The writing is a total different thing. Let other people write. It's always good to receive counsel, but at the end of the day, it's good to decide what the Lord wants you to do, not just what people have told you to do. And he has more written sermons in circulation today than any other pastor who's ever lived. His books were famous. They went. And in America, they would read his sermons. They would read his books. 
And in the year 1860, when the Civil War was ready to explode and there was tension in America, he wrote in his papers, knowing the backlash it would cause, he said, I do from my inmost soul detest slavery anywhere and everywhere. And although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. Whenever one has called upon me, I have considered it my duty to express my detestation of this wickedness. And when as would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church or into any sort of friendship as a man-stealer, which is what the Bible called it, by the way. Some people who don't know the Scriptures will say, well, they had slavery in the Bible. They had indentured servitude in their different cultures where you would pay off your debt. But in the Old Testament law, God said, if any among you is a man-stealer, meaning you kidnap someone by force against their will and sell them into slavery, that man is to be put to death. God has always been very clear about that. His letter was published in the South in 1860, and in response, by the spring of that year, his sales in the American South plummeted. Southerners published threats against him and held public burnings of his books. Friends warned him not to accept any speaking engagements in America, for they feared for that he might be killed. Spurgeon had a college where he trained workers for the ministry, And as part of what he did in receiving them for the ministry from time to time, he received them into his house. And on one occasion, his wife, Susanna, wrote about a time when they had two African men in their home with their wives who were preparing to go to Africa as missionaries to preach the gospel in their homeland. But their story was unique because these two preachers had been slaves in America. And they recounted to her how many times when they wanted to sing their songs of hope while they worked, they dropped their voice to near a whisper because they were afraid that if their masters heard them singing, they would come and would beat them as they had done before. She recounts in her writings how she asked them, Will you sing to me in the whispers you sang then? And they very sweetly complied with my wish. I shall never forget that painful hushing of their voices. There was not a dry eye in that little company when the song was ended, but we wiped our tears away, soon remembering that the cause for sorrow no longer existed. They are now free, noble, educated men and women. They can sing and pray and preach as loudly and as long as they please. Let us not take for granted this season of giving thanks, the rights we have which we so easily forget that to sing and pray and preach at the top of our lungs with no fear of oppression is not a gift that all the church has enjoyed throughout history. She says, They are bound for the land of their fathers with the intention of exercising these privileges to the full and making known the gospel of the grace of God to their kindred according to the flesh. The Lord go forth with them and prosper them. The echoes of that singular song have lingered with me ever since, and many a time have they comforted my heart. Number three, Peter was guilty of fearing men more than God. Why did he withdraw? He feared them. The end of verse 12 says, which were of the circumcision. Those are the Judaizers. Those are they who just Paul was referring to that they came. When he came to Jerusalem, they surrounded the apostles and cornered them and said, there's Titus. Are you teaching him that he's a Greek? Are you teaching him that circumcision is necessary for salvation and to please God? And they said, no. Quit asking about that. Quit trying to put that on the church. So they're known as the circumcision. These are the legalizers that Paul rebukes. And Peter saw that they were coming to town, evidently men of some influence or power and authority, afraid that maybe they would stir up persecution against him. 
So he very quietly, because of his fear, withdrew himself and stopped going to the table to eat with his brothers and sisters in Christ who were not Jewish. The text says he did it because of fear. When Peter was recounting the story of Cornelius that we mentioned earlier, he said unto them, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. You see what they were living by? It's unlawful for you to keep company with non-Jews. It's unlawful for you to sit at their table. Don't receive them. Peter then says, But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. But he fell away from this. Because he was afraid. Because he was not living by faith. The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. If the Lord is our Savior, then why will we fear what man can do unto us? Let us stand boldly for the truth and not be afraid of what man can do. Because if our trust is in the Lord, we will be safe regardless of the consequences. Let us choose to do right when no one else is. The Jewish traditions would obviously continue the longest at Jerusalem. So would the pressure to impose them. Barnes says about the fear of Peter, he feared the effect of their opposition. He feared their reproaches. He feared the report which would be made to those at Jerusalem. Then he goes on to eloquently say, this is a melancholy illustration of Peter's characteristic trait of mind. We see in this act the same Peter who trembled when he began to sink in the waves. The same Peter who denied his Lord, bold, ardent, zealous, and forward. He was at the same time timid and often irresolute. And he often had occasion for the deepest humility and the most poignant regrets at the errors of his course. No one can read his history without loving his ardent and sincere attachment to his master. And yet no one can read it without a tear of regret that he was left thus to do injury to his cause. Number three, Peter's sin led others astray. There's a bumper sticker that says, do whatever you want, just don't hurt anybody else. To some degree, I, I agree with that, at least politically, and the laws and the way they should be, a little more libertarian than they are, in my opinion. But it's a lie to say, do what you want, just don't influence others. Because when we sin, others see our sin. Others are harmed. The higher your position of influence, the more people are harmed when you sin. So when the father sins, it hurts the family. When the pastor sins, it hurts the church. And so on and so forth. Verse 13, And the other Jews dissembled, which simply means acted hypocritically. Dissimulation means hypocrisy. And the other Jews acted hypocritically likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their hypocrisy. So the other Jews are the other Christians. They were going into other people's houses as well. They were receiving the Gentiles in fellowship. But when they saw Peter was pulling back, They followed his example. And this great level of peer pressure came down upon the church that even Barnabas was affected. Barnabas was Paul's missionary partner. Barnabas was, by all accounts in the Scripture, a jolly good fellow. Barnabas was the one telling Paul, no, no, don't stop being so hard on John Mark. Let's receive him back. Let's let him go. He was there serving somewhat in the background, but helping and doing what was needed to be done. But when he saw that Peter was being a hypocrite and pulling away from other believers, Barnabas, and was leading other Christians to do so, Barnabas should have said something. He should have said, Peter, don't do this. He should have set the right example. 
But the peer pressure was so thick and so heavy that even Barnabas quietly backed away and followed what they were doing. Isn't it so easy in the heat of the moment to back away, to follow the crowd, to think later of what we should have said? But in the moment, it's so easy when no one else is supporting us to just maybe not stand up and say something wrong. But it's easy to fade into the background and follow others into error. And Paul is pointing out, Peter, your sin caused others to follow you. Number four, Peter was guilty of hypocrisy, as we just read in verse 13. Paul explains, But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Now catch this if you can. I know our time's done. I'm right at the very end, I promise. But he said, you're not living according to the truth of the gospel. Peter wasn't saying you you have to add to the gospel to get saved, but he wasn't living by the spirit of the gospel, which says Jesus is enough. Do Gentiles have Jesus? That's enough. I receive them as brothers. So the gospel is not just what happens to us in one moment when we receive Christ. It is the driving force for the way we live. We live according to the spirit of the gospel. When I saw they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Had Peter been keeping the law and the traditions? No. He'd been going to the Gentiles' table. He'd been eating meals that were not kosher. He'd been proclaiming to others, we don't have to do that. He'd been enjoying his liberty in Christ to set aside all the rules and regulations and rejoice in the Lord Jesus and receive other brothers and sisters. It says it right there. Paul says, you've not been living according to the of the Jews. But now you're compelling non-Jews to keep all the Jewish rules? That's hypocrisy. And it's wrong. Paul then says, I said unto Peter before them all. You see, Matthew 18 says, you got something against your brother, go in private. But then there's another principle, which is that a public sin often requires a public rebuke. Because Peter sinned publicly. Peter hurt the church publicly. Peter taught other Jewish followers of Christ to shun other people based off of the culture they were living in. So Paul said it was necessary that before them all, I stand up and rebuke Peter to his face and tell them, you were wrong. We don't know where this event occurred. Some people imagine this whole thing happening at a lunchroom, as it were. They're all at one table, and then the Judaizers show up, and Peter gets up and slowly moves to the other table, and everybody gets up and follows him. I think it was probably more of within everybody's houses and in the public square. It was public enough for Paul to notice what had happened and to be willing to confront it. But maybe this was at a meal. Maybe this was at church. Maybe it was a meeting that Paul called. But before the whole church, Paul got up and said, Peter, you're wrong, and you need to correct this. Albert Barnes says, We learn here that it is a duty to reprove those who err. It is a painful duty and one much neglected. Still, it is a duty often enjoined in the Scriptures and one that is of the deepest importance to the church. He who does a favor, he does a favor to another man who in a kind spirit admonishes him of his error, reclaims him from a course of sin. He does another the deepest injury, who suffers sin unrebuked to lie upon him, and who sees him injuring himself and others, and who is at no pains to admonish him for his faults. In other words, always wanting to be liked, 
can be just as harmful as always wanting to be right and always wanting to correct others, even if it's not your responsibility. Paul's public rebuke followed 1 Timothy 5.20 about pastors who sin publicly, them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Charles Spurgeon said, The best of men are but men at the best, and the brightest saints are still sinners, for whom there is still a fountain open. Praise be to God. Whatever sin we've fallen into, we can go to God for forgiveness. Number five, Peter was willing to repent. The text does not record what Peter did or said. Some of this is a little bit of conjecture. But when you put together the narrative of the New Testament, it's very easy to see that Peter did not become irate and angry at Paul and say, how dare you confront me and lead one church over here where Paul led the other Rather, we see Peter writing things like he did here in 2 Peter 3. He says, account the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Then he says, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. couple things. Peter said of Paul, not, he's the guy I'm feuding with. He said, our beloved brother Paul. Galatians was, we believe, the first book written that Paul wrote in the New Testament. This was most likely later on in Peter's life. And he looked back with love and admiration for Paul. And by the way he lived, we can conjecture that Peter received the rebuke and made it right. He also says that what Paul wrote, like he did in Galatians, is the Scripture. He said some people take it and twist it. And he also said in those epistles and scriptures that Paul wrote, there's some things that are really hard to understand. So if you've ever had a problem understanding Paul, don't be afraid of that because Peter did too. He said, he's our beloved brother and sometimes I don't understand what he wrote, but it's from God and we need to rightly divide the scriptures. Did Peter go out and weep bitterly this time? Did he sit on it? Did he immediately acknowledge his error? We don't know. But praise the Lord, he was willing to receive a rebuke and to correct his error. And the church was able to keep going forward as one church, not the church of Peter, the church of Paul, the church of the Gentiles, and the church of the Jews. A good man is willing to receive rebuke when it is warranted. And much in our heart is revealed to be wrong if we become irate when someone dares to question us. Let's bow for prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as Melissa comes to play, let us lift our hearts in prayer this morning and meditate upon Your Word. Receive the message and seek that in our church this will be a place where everyone will be loved and welcomed and received, no matter who they are. As I rejoice according to Your grace, I believe is the case. Hear us now as we pray. Let the Word of God wash over us. Let it change us. We love You. Let us pray together.